These days, it's one of the most exciting but overwhelming times to be in a marketing or sales job or career. I should know, I came up in the content marketing industry and still consider myself a content marketer and do a lot of marketing. But all the content I can access through Google search and most of the content I see spinning around the social chatter, it's pretty baseline stuff at best and rehashed regurgitated junk at worst. And the worst seems to be the typical experience that I have of industry content. And that's why I'm excited to partner with The Juice, our Q4 sponsor. The Juice is like Spotify for that type of content. If you log into their beautifully designed portal, they will surface some of the most powerful and original thinking for sales and marketers today. And then based on your profile, which you can set up for free, they suggest content tailored to your needs. So for example, I see a playlist titled Popular with Company Owners with a Marketing Focus. That's me. That's me perfectly. I am tired of the basic junk in marketing and sales content. I want the best and brightest thinking that push me to be better. That's what The Juice offers. You can subscribe for free at thejuicehq.com. Hey, it's Jay, and we're approaching the holidays here in 2021, and I thought it made sense to re-examine how far we've come in trying to understand one key concept on this show, resonance. What does it take to create work that resonates to grow our businesses and leave our legacies? I think there's a book somewhere in this exploration eventually, and certainly keynote speeches. I'm working through the details of a video series, a course. There's a lot more here, all to help us create work that truly deeply resonates. To recap some of the key insights and the ideas that we've learned so far from all the stories we told of late, I'm going to present the draft of something I've been working on for a little while now for the very first time. And I'm going to discuss it with the guy who is actually responsible for me investigating that one word, resonance. But before we get there, a quick word about another word, investigation. I said we're investigating resonance. I didn't say, I am the expert in resonance, you're here to learn from me. There's one meta lesson that people keep pointing out to me about my work and the stories I I tell that are such a big part of the work, which is that we've framed all of this work as an investigation. And the kind of stake in the ground story that we told to say we're launching an investigation was an episode that we called Leaving Expertville. It was the most popular episode that we launched this year and one of the most popular episodes I've ever done, Leaving Expertville. In that story, we met a successful marketing leader named John Benini, who was struggling to come up with idea after idea for his content, day after day. And the hidden issue he faced was that he was stuck acting like an expert rather than acting like an investigator. And so we then heard from an author and speaker, Andrew Davis, about the differences between the two. And by the way, Drew refers to investigators who help change the world for the better as visionaries. You know, we've been taught that the goal is to get people to click, then consume, share, like, and comment on your content, and that the volume matters, not the quality of the output of the reader. (laughs) And so... You know, that's the difference between a visionary and an expert. A visionary is is more concerned about the legacy they're leaving with the lives they've touched than they are about how many people viewed the post today.
when I hear from listeners like you, it tends to be about the content itself, whatever hit home about the stories we're telling. But after leaving Expertville, I started to hear about the meta lesson, the underlying idea that my content is an investigation. And wow, I'd never thought about creating my work like that too, Jay. And maybe we should. Maybe our work would resonate deeper if we stopped acting like experts and started acting like investigators. If we said to the world, or at least the community we want to serve, look, the status quo, where we stand, is broken. I see where we should go. I have a vision for something better in the future. Join me, join us, join this community as we embark on a quest to try and arrive at that future, to build the world we want to live in. What a wonderful way to create, to grow audience, to build your business, to leave your legacy. What a great way to resonate. Stop acting like an expert and start acting like an investigator. Because believe it or not, today in our line of work, expertise is a commodity. Expert advice is redundant and repetitive. And it, it doesn't last forever. Like there's a, there's a well that you will get to the bottom of at some point. And if you don't get to the bottom of it, your audience will. When they're like, I've heard this before. I get it. I've heard it before. This is just a derivative of somebody else's idea that you had on the podcast or the, on the blog or that you interviewed on your YouTube channel last week. You know, if you want to engage at a deeper level with an audience, we have to ask the questions that they didn't know they needed to ask. Andrew Davis goes on to present a visual framework in that episode. The framework is called the Quest Matrix, and I highly suggest listening to him break it down with me. It's something, again, that people point to when they talk about the show this year, that one episode and specifically that one moment. Again, the episode is called Leaving Expertville, and you can find it in your unthinkable feed about seven or eight episodes prior to this one. But in this one, in this episode of the show, you and I are going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to recap how far we've come investigating resonance on the show and really all of my work. And I asked somebody to join as my idea sparring partner, someone to put the ideas in the boxing ring and beat them up a little bit. And we're going to hear the draft of what I call the dialogue outline about resonance, the dialogue outline. It's another one of Andrew Davis's heuristics for creative work. Again, you got to hear Drew on that episode of Leaving Expertville. But in this episode, I didn't want to take up too much of Drew's time. So instead, I asked somebody equally creative and insightful, a visionary in his own right, Jay Klaus. Jay's the creator and host of the popular podcast, Creative Elements. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. I highly recommend it. He's a thoughtful, really talented interviewer, and his guests talk about things that they don't normally talk about elsewhere. People like Seth Godin, Vanessa Van Edwards, Amy Landino, Tim Urban, and James Clear, and a lot more. Anyways, my hope in this episode of my show is that you're going to learn from me and Jay about what goes on in this kind of work, but more appropriately to your work, the meta lessons of it all, how you might construct your process to resonate deeper, to stop acting like an expert and start acting like an investigator. Even if, as you're going to hear me lay out today, there's a lot of messiness, uncertainty, and difficult questions or problems you haven't figured out the answer to. I hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes episode with Jay Klaus. 
Okay, so the, the thing that still causes me to break out in some cold sweats, uh, but it's like an appreciative style of cold sweats, Jay, is a while ago, we had been talking about my positioning or positioning in general, and I was sort of laying out where I was at. And you said something really interesting, because at the time, I was talking all about this one specific idea of making what matters. How do I make what matters? How do I help others make what matters? That's still the North Star for me. But is that what I articulate on the website? Is, I, is that what I say the show is about, et cetera? And what you said was you were, you were jealous. That's not the cold sweats part. You were jealous of the fact that I seemed very clear and consistent across all my platforms on that idea and on my positioning. But you said, and I'll never forget this, I seem so actualized or self-actualized on these ideas that you weren't sure how to like close the the gap between where I had gotten to and where you were at. So let's start with that incredibly broad idea and then we'll touch on how we arrived at resonance. What did you mean by that? I was at a point when I was also trying to figure out my own positioning and the presence you have and the conviction that you have is a word that I would use when you talk about what you're trying to do just felt very self-assured which i was simultaneously attracted to and then just like wildly jealous of (laughs) it was like why don't i feel that way and how did you get there yeah and you know how could i get there that's what i was feeling in that moment because what was really attractive to me was the fact that i was attracted to that assuredness And that's the type of assuredness that I also want to put out in the world around my work and how I'm feeling and not like a false assuredness that lures people in, but one that shows that I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm comfortable at least on the journey that I'm going on. And that journey is worth subscribing to as somebody else. Where is the then need for me to change up? Because that was that was you were very clear. You were like, you probably need to sort of rearticulate you know, the phrase I used was like, meet others where they're at, right? Yeah. So like, it, it didn't seem like I was doing that perhaps for a little bit. Like part of it was make what matters is something that I can definitely agree to and say like, yes, I want to do that. But it's also like pretty ambiguous, like what matters to whom, uh, who decides what matters? Is there some objective measure Am I working on frivolous things? Like I had a lot of questions and I wasn't sure exactly how your work answered that because like, of course I want to make what matters, but it it felt pretty ambiguous and a little bit inaccessible in that way. So then along those lines, I asked you, this is all mostly through asynchronous communication, like Slack that we were having these conversations. And then I asked you for some time to chat. And on that call, I kind of just like blurted out a bunch of stuff, which is I think a wonderful way to use a relationship that it, you kind of see eye to eye on certain things, but you know, you're, you're like, if I just put my ideas out into the boxing ring and you put on some gloves and beat them up, I actually feel reasonably good about that instead of like hiding from it, you know, the public eye that's harder to do beat it up, polish it, or even maybe a more uplifting way of thinking of this is like, which threads start to glow red for you that you want to grab hold of or have me grab hold of and pursue. But I stepped back and I was like, all right, of all the words I just used, is there like one that you could use to describe what it is I seem to be good at doing, but also explore and help others do. And you said resonance. What is the significance of that word to you? And obviously the goals you have, which is not just to like exist as Jay on a feed or a project, but like you're building a business. I think it means to me the 
delivery on an expectation or a de- delivery on a promise. To me, that is probably the most important part of a relationship that is like based on communication. I'm, I'm saying some like kind of abstract words here, but you know, we're, we're creators. We make things for others to enjoy, to learn from, to benefit from. There's an inherent promise in that. And when people say, yes, I will tune in, pay attention to what you're saying. That is them going out on a limb and we need to deliver on that promise. So a lot of creators, myself included, and still to this day, I probably over index on this. We focus on getting people to opt in in the first place and to say, okay, I'll tune in. I'll see what you're saying. But if you fail to deliver on that and you don't gratify that, that urge of theirs, then nothing really matters. Like the fact that you got them to opt in doesn't matter. And your stuff has always been like the step two. Like if you're paying attention, I want you to like really enjoy what I'm saying. I mean, like down to the name of your newsletter, playing favorites. Like you want this to be something that people really look forward to, regard very highly. It's differentiated. And I hadn't put that level of focus on that stage of the relationship yet. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. And for you listening, my friend, I have simple note app right next to Squadcast as Jay and I speak. And I'm also going to pull up my notion later on my phone and we're going to read through a couple things. But I'm learning here. This is the point. The point is not just to recap how far we've come and pat ourselves on the back. The point is to improve my ideas and see where this takes us as a as a collective. The thing I pulled out from that, Jay, is I use this phrase often for marketers. Great marketing is not about who arrives, it's about who stays. And a lot of us are focused on who arrives. And a lot of things you hear about, especially on the social web, is how to get more people to arrive, how to go viral, viral loops, how to be visible, right? Marketing is not about being visible. Marketing is not about getting in front of people. Marketing is about helping people understand why they care about this. And sometimes you're showing them, sometimes you're you know, providing it, actually creating the thing they care about. But regardless, it's about who cares. It's about who stays. I don't think anything we do works unless that happens. And, you know, the the proxy for all this is awareness. And I think there's a hubris in that. We think about awareness all the time. Like if people were just aware of this, if they were, if they only knew my podcast existed, they would love it. That's a dangerous assumption, I think. And how about spend more time about the love it part? Do they love it? Are you know, you have a hundred people listening. You wish it was a hundred thousand. I get it. But what about the hundred who are listening? Do they truly love it? Are they sharing it often? Are you hearing from them? Because maybe if you invested in that, not only would they go deeper with you and take actions that benefit your business, they'd also might share more freely and bring you new people for free. So I have a very marketing-centric lens over all this stuff. And Jay, you have much more of a creator lens or an entrepreneur lens. And you know what I'm finding is this idea of resonance. When I talk to my audience, it's you're an accountant. What are you doing listening to my show? You're in HR. You're a recruiter. It's really anybody who has this idea of somebody receiving the work I put out. And the goal is to spark action. It's not just to be in front of them, but it's to spark action. And so that's why I think resonance holds this sort of raw material that if we can refine it and distill it a little bit, it might be something we can take with us and use. When I say I'm exploring resonance, you're somebody who immediately is like, yeah, I want to resonate deeper. Do you think, and this is a fear I've had, do you think that me walking around on this earth and saying that's what I'm exploring connects enough with other people and they're already ready to hear that message? 
In other words, do I need to go back a step even further to say, I help you create work that is irreplaceable in the minds of those you serve? And oh, by the way, the way to do that is to learn to resonate. Or do you think this idea of resonance has that like universal specific enough, right? It's like, it feels like it's so specific to my work, but enough people will get on board with it right away that I can just lead with that. Man, gut feel like totally honest. I don't know. Like I, I, I am a little, I'm a little dubious. You know, you, we often hear the, the, the advice that like the best writing is at like a third grade level. Oh yeah. Uh, this is like, this is very much a, a upperclassman high school word, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and not to like underestimate the, the intelligence of people on a broad level, but I do wonder how much that hits people in the gut. Whereas two things that we've already said that I think might be a little bit more intuitive that are kind of in the same direction, playing favorites. I think that's great. I think that makes a lot of sense intuitively. I also think it's not about who comes, but who stays that, that idea I think is even more intuitive than resonance, even though they all kind of mean the same thing. Right. I think it's a differentiated word, which is positive in a certain way. There are, there are like four words here that make up like this really great creator soup. I think that all start with RE reach revenue, resonance relationships, like all four of those things Nice. I think are super important. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how intuitive resonance is. The thing is, does it matter? Because when you ask like how intuitive is the word resonance, to me, that's more of a reach question than a resonance question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like if your stance is resonance is more important, then I think it works. Whereas if I'm coming at this from a lens of how do I give myself the best chance to hook people up front, I'm probably not using the word resonance. Mm-hmm. So this brings me to two different things. So one is this sort of reconciliation between reach and resonance. And the second is, how do I start to aerate or refine or communicate the idea? In other words, what am I laying out in front of me in draft form that I can then work on and pressure test and share and update? You know, Because it can't just be all in my head. It's got to be written and then published and written again. Um, and I do have one document I turn to for that, which we can go over. The reconciliation between reach and resonance. Let's just define the two first. I'll try these on for size and you tell me if this feels right and we can just move on if if so. Reach is how many people see it. Resonance is how much they care. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. And obviously we would all agree. We don't just want people to see it, whatever it is, the culture you're building, the company, the brand, the project, you, even if it's internal to your boss, to your client, to your peers, we don't want to just be seen. We want people to react positively, to have this emotional reaction that is in our favor in some way. We want them to care. We'd all agree with that. I think the problem is the way we go about our work doesn't actually map to that idea. And that's, that's the big problem. That's what I'm trying to solve. Okay. So to your point, is me debating, do I lead with resonance or something else? A reach problem, not a resonance problem. Yes, it absolutely is. But I think it's important to meet people where they're at and then walk them every step of the way to where they're trying to go. And it's really difficult when you go on these like idea investigations or, you know, which I think is part of how you position yourself. We talk about positioning. I think positioning is the output or one output along with, you know, a speech, a book, whatever. But your strong positioning, pithy positioning, your premise for your show is an output of an investigation you've gone on to understand how to communicate something in a way that connects. I don't think that just happens. And so there's this 
structure to an argument you can make, which I learned from my friend, Andrew Davis. And he gave me early in my speaking career, something called a dialogue outline, which is essentially for a structure of a speech. But what I've found is it works beautifully for a structure of any big idea driven project. Like if you're trying to explain something in a quick video, if you're trying to uh, just lay out your big thinking and let that inform your positioning, anytime you have to say, I'm trying to change how you do something or see something, it behooves you to use this document because you are inherently having a dialogue with your audience, but you just don't hear their end of it most times. And when you do, it's pieces, it's parts and pieces and signal. It's not one coherent end-to-end conversation with a collective or one person giving you feedback. Right. So you have to kind of make sense of it in your own head, but I think better is to actually put it on the page. So here's what I want to do, Jay. I want to give you in brief the parts I have so far of the dialogue outline, and I want you to just tear it to pieces. Fun. Here are the pieces of the dialogue outline for you listening. And Jay, I think maybe this is the first time I've laid it out for you. Correct. All right. So again, it's about the conversation you're having with the audience. The goal of this is to explain a big idea in such a way that it feels inescapable and irresistible and almost obvious to the person on the receiving end. You know, the reaction you're going for, and I think we've all felt this when we hear a great speech, for example, is that head smack moment where people go, oh my goodness, yes, right? It's so simple. Or how did I miss that? Well, even though that happened instantly in your mind, to get to the point where you can explain it in such a way that that's the reaction from an audience is a lot of work. So here's how we make that work easier. The structure is simple. First, you do something called a vanguard, which is a very simple vignette, metaphor, story, anecdote, observation, which is connected thematically to what you want to talk about, but is mostly to just ease into the harder to accept points you're about to make. In military terms, the vanguard would be like the front little tip of the attack, which allows more people to come in. So you're kind of like softening the hard line that you're attacking, right? So I just want to sort of get you open to new ideas. I need a vanguard. This is something I usually decide on last because it's almost like if I was writing an essay about something, you know, I might open with a little backstory about you and me having a conversation or something, Jay. That would be the vanguard. And it's like, I don't quite know where Jay's going by writing this story. Oh, now by the end of the story, I get it. I'm open to what's going to happen next. Then you have the shared goal. The audience is going to wonder as soon as you walk on a stage, as soon as you open your mouth, why should I care about this, this idea, this talk, this project? the shared goal, immediately align with the audience. Once they get nodding, then you present the status quo. Their question is, aren't we already trying to do this? Aren't we already going after that goal? And you acknowledge, yes, here's how we're typically doing it. The fourth is the problems with the status quo. What's wrong with our current approach then? And at this point, you start to feel like a leader. Instead of an acknowledger and a buddy, you're like, actually, there's problems with the way we're going at it. And you get one of two reactions, either, yep, experience this all the time, you get it. Or people go, oh my God, I'd never noticed that. You're right. And now you can say, all right, their question is going to be, so what do we do instead? And that's where you present your big idea. So that's where I'd come out and talk about resonance, right? And that's why I think the reach resonance reconciliation is all these parts up front. I have to talk about what we are already aware we want, and then resonance might come out. Then your methodology might come out, et cetera. And then really quickly to bring this home, and here's the big idea. Then I would tell you a story so you see it when it works. Then I would break down the lessons from that story into some kind of methodology you can execute, probably with supporting smaller stories along the way. 
And finally, I'd end with some kind of rally close. I would end by saying, remember, we all want X, but to do that, we're going about it in this way. And here's all these problems. So what if we, why instead do this piece of the method, do that piece of the method, do that piece of the method. And in the end, that is how we will achieve pithy tweetable moment. Thank you. So I didn't say a single word there and I hope people are going, wow, like he said zero content and I'm kind of like tingly (laughs) right now. Like that's the power of explaining something in the right order. All right. Are you ready? I'm going to give you the very, very brief version and also very raw. It's not final. I I wouldn't put this anywhere publicly of mine. Yep. Hit me. Okay. This is the first time anyone's hearing this, which means eventually there's going to be thousands of people hearing it, but here we go. All right. So the Vanguard, um, We start today with one of life's most important questions. What is the best Disney film of all time? (laughs) Stay with me. It's going to get weirder before it gets better. In college, I watched this movie. It was amazing. We remembered it from our childhood. My friends and I, completely sober, of course, started trying to do the dance that you find in this movie where one character ends up on stage with the fictional pop star called Powerline in a goofy movie, right? So I think my favorite or sorry, I think the best Disney movie of all time is in fact a goofy movie. It's not all these other movies. And I'll make the case, right? I'll tell that story a little bit more succinctly and clearly, but I'm making the case right away. The most important question we can ask is what is the best Disney film ever? And I'm here to tell you it's actually a goofy movie. And here's my story about a goofy movie. Now you might be thinking two things having heard that story. Thing number one, Jay, you're right. That dance that you did is so cool and you must have looked even cooler doing it. And to that, I say, thank you. I value your opinion and you're correct. Thing number two, but Jay, that's not the best Disney film. The best Disney film is Moana or Frozen or Snow White, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Wally, Soul, whatever it is that you might be thinking. And to that, I'd say, thank you. I value your opinion, but you're wrong. The best Disney film is a goofy movie. I just explained to you why. I didn't. I just told you a story about my relationship with the movie, but that, that's the point. So what gives? If there's, in fact, the best option, we'd all agree because it would be objective. Of course, people are not objective. We're subjective, emotional. We can't agree on our top choice on the best of anything. In fact, when we think about the best, I don't think we're really thinking about the best in any academic sense, nor do we even care. When most of us think about the best, what we're really thinking about is our favorite. And favorite doesn't mean objectively the best or the biggest or the top ranked or even just good. Favorite means our personal preferred pick for that specific purpose. Your favorite shirt is not necessarily or objectively the best made shirt. Just ask my wife. Your favorite restaurant or dish, your favorite app or book, your favorite creator or brand. I'm a New York Knicks fan, and until very recently, the Knicks were awful. They're getting a little bit better. But on average, for 20 years, you could claim that the Knicks are the worst team in the NBA. Think about that. The worst team among all my options is my favorite. Now, I don't need to think they're the best. I'm still their fan, their customer. I'm actually paying money to the worst option. And in this case, I'd even freely admit, yeah, on average, they're horrible. That's crazy. So whether it's a team or an object, an app or a brand or an individual or a Disney film, we all have these irrational biases towards something. And I think that as creative people, we can create that irrational bias towards us. I mean, that is our goal, isn't it? So that ends the Vanguard. 
we, we just landed there on what sounds like the shared goal. So even though that was the vanguard, you did introduce the shared goal at the end, right? Correct. It dovetails into our, our shared goal. In other words, the thing you already know you deeply want and are probably trying to work towards is other people who experience your work having some kind of irrational bias towards you, some favoritism towards you. Do you know what I think makes the Goofy movie the best movie of all time? Go on. They have the perfect cast. Oh, oh my God. First of all, proud of you. I'm like too proud of you to be mad, even though that pun was awful. Second of all, people who don't understand what <laughs> it deserves some explanation in a Goofy movie. Goofy is a fan of fishing and has what he calls the perfect cast, like casting his fishing rod. And in the movie that plays heavily into the plot in a bizarre way. But obviously you meant cast as like the movies cast proud of that uh anyway sorry Ooh. to derail us i did like the story a lot because you really did help me get to the obvious the, the the comparison to uh the basketball team being like objectively the worst really brought home the idea that yeah some of our favorite things or some of the things that we really like objectively are not the best uh i thought that really brought it home cool that's that's really great to know i had a terrible manager once tell me that my goal would be to be the best at something and I was like, yes, I'm inspired. And then I walked away going, but wait, like I'm in knowledge work. I'm in creative. What does that even mean? The best. So I just think it's an elusive, non-existent goal that we just accept that that should be the goal. But it's not. It's not what grows our businesses or our level of fulfillment. All right. So should we move on to the shared goal? Yep. Cool. Shared goal. We all want others to have an irrational bias towards us, to love us, and to consider us their favorites, our audience prospective customers or employees, existing customers or team, clients, bosses, peers, the media, whomever. We want them to love us as they receive our work. We don't just want followers, we want fans, not just customers, evangelists, not just colleagues, teammates, and not just new hires, difference makers. They don't just appreciate us, they adore us. It's irrational, emotional, and personal. That is what we all want. But, and I'll just go right into the problems here, but there we go again, obsessing over being the biggest or the best. That's how we approach this. To get their love, we have to be the biggest. We have to be the best. We have to outrank somebody. And the problem with that mentality is it changes our behavior and, in fact, our identity in the minds of those we serve. Most notably, our very being becomes inextricably tied to our competition. Our identity is about how we compare to other options, and that's all. Are we bigger? Are we better? Are we the biggest or the best? Even a goal like be different, you hear this often. I think a creative person is excited by that. Be different. That idea comes with an implied question. All these ideas do. Bigger than whom? Better than whom? Different from whom? The answer, your competitors. But that's not who you serve. That's not how you should construct your business. Trying to be someone's favorite forces us to ask a different, more productive question. Favorite for whom? the customer, the audience, whoever we aim to serve. It has nothing to do with putting us on a spreadsheet or a spectrum alongside similar options. If that is our fate, that is a race to the bottom where we have to compete on things like price and vanity metrics or optics, not the substance or value we provide. And we certainly can't charge a premium for it. We're obsessed with the wrong things. We want to be number one in the category. We're going to be the most widely known, a total smash hit. We're going to grow our reach, our awareness. But in doing so, we make a dangerous assumption. If only more people were aware, they would care. Well, I think we should focus on doing things that make people care. Okay, so I'll end there. 
because that you can see is starting to nudge up against the next section presenting the big idea, which is where I'll use the word resonance for the first time. So I'll pause there. I just gave you the shared goal, the status quo, and the problems with the status quo in brief. Thoughts, questions, concerns? I think it's well constructed. Like I'm definitely following this outline. The cynical part of my brain is like, totally agree that you shouldn't make decisions purely based off of competitors by any means. And I like the reframe of if you use these relational words, bigger than, better than, different from, you are benchmarking against other people and that's not necessarily serving your customer. Where I see some nuance or have some like pause is if you do really great work, but you're doing it for an audience or a person, a type of person who already is having that need served by someone else in the market, I think you're doing yourself a disservice by not being aware of that. Because if they already have this itch scratched, they're not going to be as open to somebody else scratching the itch. They have other problems to solve. Can you give me an example, like using a company or product or creator's work? Sure. I'll use myself as a creator. Cool. Let's say that I wanted to start writing a newsletter about the future of tech and media or something. And I am unaware that Ben Thompson exists writing Stratechery, but the audience that I'm looking for are the people who read Stratechery. I'm probably screwed trying to out Ben Thompson, Ben Thompson. Like I could still write really great stuff, but if they are being served like daily by this guy who's been doing it longer than I have, has better insight than I do. If I'm unaware of his market position and that my audience is already being served on the need that I'm trying to serve better by someone else. I think I'm setting myself up to waste a bunch of time. Okay. Interesting. So two things. One, when you present the problems with the shared goal, which then get you to the big idea, like people go, okay, what should I do instead? And I say, learn how to resonate, right? Or resonate deeper. Some people are going to go hell to the yeah like preach, right? And I like I have some true believers or at least some folks that at that point are already on board with the way I'm communicating this idea. Again, I keep using a speech as an easy model. Other people are going to go, I'm not so sure. Like the cynics, they're going to want to hear how I defend my argument and justify, but either way I get permission to keep talking. So this is great because what I'm not hearing is mm, you're way off. What I'm hearing is like, okay, but now in this specific thing I'm dealing with, how does it show up? And so I have two possible reactions. One is, well, in that specific thing, what I'm speaking to is not useful, right? Like, I think that's a danger in the way you position yourself or create a big idea or project is like, this is for every situation. It's a panacea. I, I probably operated like that too, but I think that's how a lot of people building on big ideas tend to operate early on. It's like, this applies in all situations, no exceptions. I've found it. So that's one option. It's like, there's some people and some use cases that I'm actually not optimizing for. Assume that I am, however, in this case. My second option is to try and explain this idea in such a way that like, what you are speaking to is at a different stage of the journey. So what you're speaking to is like, I got to stack up against other stuff. Absolutely. Like my software example, at the point at which you're comparing me and the features to others, I haven't reached you in the right way. However, if I said to the world, some strong belief about social media. Let's say it was like 
we've lost the script with social media. Everybody's starting to use it with broadcast in mind, with conversion in mind, with high growth in mind. Social media needs to get back the social component, right? If I'm saying that in the world, then some users of my competitor might be like, I agree. And maybe they don't change right away, but eventually they might say, I'm starting at a new company, I'm starting my own company, or the contract is up with this tool, or sure, even right away, they decide to spend some time over with my camp. And I might be able to win you over in that way. So I think what part of this means doing is to A, acknowledge it's probably not going to apply everywhere because no idea does. And B, there are certain chess moves you have to think through where I'm not going to use this almost like an ad to make you switch. I'm going to use this as a way into your relationship or our relationship can form. And you might end up buying later, or you might end up just sharing my content or my message with people who, who do, right? So there's influence that I can have, even if it doesn't look like something I can put up on an, an analytics chart for this quarter. I'm realizing that I'm also inherently bringing my lens, which is often opposed to your lens, to what I'm hearing from you. Because that's good. That's why I want to talk. The resonance idea only matters in the context of who is hearing your message. It only is relevant to who you're reaching in the first place. And my criticism or my pause right here was just from the standpoint of, but I'm assuming we have to start with reaching people. Whereas if you, if you frame this as, uh, let's okay. assume that, let's yeah. talk about how you show up to the people that you're already showing up with, right. then I think my argument goes away. Well, no, let's let's use the Ben Thompson idea. You're not gonna, you might reach some people because other people, if you don't know Ben Thompson exists, Ben Thompson, by the way, writes Stratechery, he writes about tech, big tech mostly, big trends, analyzes data beautifully. If you don't know he exists, a lot of other people might not either. But even still, you probably have a small number of people, whatever that is, in your world that you could deliver this to. That's your feedback loop for now. And so I don't think starting as a worse version or slightly, but not that's not different version of Ben Thompson is a bad thing because what you're doing is you're going to cycle through enough feedback loops that eventually you're going to find your, your own groove. And part of that is you reflecting on the work you're putting out. And, and a lot of that is going to be you talking to customers. So I'll give you a really great example. Um, one of my favorite stories that I've told a lot is about Mike Brown, the founder of death wish coffee. It's the strongest coffee in the world. And when he started, he was not from the coffee industry and the, the decisions he was making seemed crazy to coffee aficionados and experts, like the types of beans he was using were often frowned upon and all these other choices. But he was making these choices not from the seat of his pants, but because all he was trying to do was serve the people right in front of him coming into the one shop he ran at the time. And those people were not you and me, Jay, writing our episodes or the next book or whatever next to some exposed brick in a cafe. The artisanal aspect didn't matter. His customers were truck drivers and like these hard charging, mostly blue collar workers. And if you look at the data of upstate New York, where he operated, that was the trend in his city too. Like it actually matched the culture and the data, despite him just looking at qualitative interactions. Um, and they reach for coffee like a Red Bull. So he was making all these choices. The branding was aggressive and not artisanal and not, you know, parchment, get out of here. Dark black, jet black, white and red skull and crossbones. So he made all these choices, right? Which at first seemed like this is not what you want to do to be successful. He just was so laser focused on his customers that he actually ended up operating like a really good product manager and software does, where all they do is talk about the problems facing their audience. So back to Stratechery, 
If you're creating that because you think it'll be fun, fantastic. Self-expression is its own reward. Don't expect results unless you then start to talk to your customers and wonder, what are you still struggling with when you try to understand tech? And they might say things that sound like stratechery, in which case, great, Ben Thompson, it's not, you know, zero sum. You can exist being very similar to him because this person you're talking to has no idea that Ben Thompson exists. Or they might say, well, you know, I read Ben Thompson or all these other people. And here's this like thing that still plagues me when I try to understand this stuff. Awesome. Pull that thread. And so when you switch from like, it's got to be in my head up front to I got to go on this investigative journey. Like my resonance journey started with trying to help people understand creative reps. And what I found was like, that is not the real problem they have. And there's also lots of other people talking about putting in the reps and showing up to work and systems and processes and habits. You know, the extrapolation of me helping you put in creative reps is I need to zoom way out and become atomic habits by James Clear, but that already exists, right? So by talking to my audience, I found out, oh, their problems are actually this direction, not my first few steps. So I'm going to tread in that direction. And I actually don't need to care about what else is out there because the more I talk to my audience, the more I realize like I can just pursue what they're giving me. Or I can understand like, actually, they're still underserved in this way. So I can just serve them and not fear that others are out there doing it too. Because A, it's not zero sum. And B, the audience I serve is telling me already, I'm not being served. And if I repeat this back to you as how I'm now understanding you and your message here, you're not telling me, hey, the best way to build an audience is to resonate deeply with one person and ignore the market. You're telling me, Hey, maybe stop looking outward, start with the people that you're already reaching and resonate with them and watch the magic happen. Yes. If you think of marketing less like a funnel and more like concentric circles, I think it switches your brain onto the right pathways. When you think of like a funnel, the goal is to get more into the top of the funnel. So awareness becomes the goal. When you think about concentric circles, the goal is to get people essentially into the bullseye. Which, oh, by the way, is pretty similar to a funnel. You want to get people to the bottom of the funnel. But the solution to that problem of not enough people are reaching the bottom is got to grow the top. The goal of creating work that is supposed to connect is to start in the middle circles. The folks that are like aware of you, kind of like you, already like you, maybe even love you. And can you turn them into super fans or just serve those super fans? And what will happen is two things. One is they will go out and get you the outer circles for free if you're doing this right. And two, when you go out to total strangers, when you appear on a podcast in a niche you've never spoken to before, your ideas will be so well honed with great examples and language and confidence and all the things you need to really resonate, right? You've worked on the foundation that now when you add that next floor to the building, right? It's like, I'm going to go out and resonate with the real estate crowd I've never talked to before. You're more likely to do so. So your hit rate goes up. I also want to caution against the way I'm reacting to your questions because I'm starting to defend. And the point was not to defend. The point was to improve. So point taken. There are some use cases I have to try on for size. So what I now need to do is to essentially pursue what you're giving me, Jay, which is I need to go and find lots and lots of use cases, lots and lots of stories, all these different niches. I got to go on an investigation into parts and pieces of the business world that don't all look the same. And see where this resonance idea shows up and where these early approaches to positioning it fall flat or hit home. So are there questions that you want to chime in with? Well, I'm, I'm also just reflecting on my own reactions to these ideas a little bit. And 
what I think I've articulated is my hang up with the idea of resonance as a still fairly early stage creator is that resonance feels a little bit like a luxury of something to focus on because, and this is, this is just a narrative that I have in my head. I'm not saying this is accurate. My head says it's a luxury because I survive when my business supports me and the business supports me when the numbers work essentially. Like I I'm still very much, as you said, funnel thinking where for me to make a living from the business, I need to have a certain number of people who are uh, so enrolled in my journey that they want to support me through whatever means that is. And historically, that has meant for me to increase that number, I need to cre- increase the reach number. Reach increases increases revenue in my mind. Your reframe is resonance increases revenue without the need for increasing reach. And I think if you frame that in my mind, for me as a creator, if you help me with that reframe, that would be fairly comforting because then like this idea of the, the bullseye where like you focus on people in the inner circles and their gravity pulls people into the outer circle circles, that would be comforting because then it feels like I just need to focus on doing what I do really well and less on being everywhere all the time. Yes. And I think that's what you're getting at, but that's not the way I heard it until talking through this. And I think this goes back to like meeting people where they're at, right? It's like how, what's actually going on in your world. And I need to start there. I need to acknowledge what you're going through and also what you want. I mean, I just said early on in a speech, you want the shared goal to be clear. So you're aligned. Helping you reframe that resonance increases revenue without needing to increase reach. I love that. And I do think there's something in here of like all the different parties one could resonate with we, Jay, could resonate deeper with our existing audience or a subset of that is the existing paying customers. We could also resonate with evangelists, some of which might be in our audience or paying customers, but evangelists are more like outbound on your behalf. What I don't think we talk often enough about is like in my audience are people who consume my work because they are also fans and maybe never buy buy the book or the course or whatever, but they run an organization that could sponsor me or they have a great network that they connect me to or they teach me stuff as a mentor. Like there's other types of value that eventually leads to revenue and also reach. And that's a good byproduct of resonance. It's like you have this awesome net you've cast, hopefully in a rather focused way, and you catch a lot of fish. Some of those fish are going to be bigger than others. The other thing I want to say is coming at it from the software world, you know, I came out of SaaS and we talk about brand, we talk about marketing for affinity, not just awareness. We talk about all these sort of technical sounding marketing jargon terms. If you just replace all that with resonance, it's like the stuff you're doing to connect more deeply. I think there's ultimately two outcomes. One is you increase LTV and the other is you lower CAC. So you increase the lifetime value of every single person who encounters your work. They stick around more. They're more active. They take more actions you know, deeper into the funnel or closer to the center of the concentric circles. They take more actions to go deeper with you that benefit you. And they also go outbound on your behalf. So it's an inward outward benefit when someone sticks around and loves you that much. So you increase the lifetime value of any one individual interacting with you. And that applies outside of marketing. That applies to recruiting, right? The lifetime value of that employee. It also lowers CAC, the uh, customer acquisition costs. Why? Because you have reputation. People arrive thinking more highly of you, probably most notably because they've heard about you from your 
evangelists, right? So when I pitch like my value of, or the, the value of a podcast or a show I'm trying to build for a brand, that's basically the punchline is I have other ways of positioning the value of a show, but mostly I'm like, look, if this show works, what we should be seeing is everyone who listens has a higher lifetime value than other cohorts of people. And we're going to be able to start decreasing your cost of customer acquisition because those become your army of fans and evangelists, right? And so the theory of the show is that it's an e- a vehicle that can resonate more deeply than a tweet. That is my ultimate pitch for why resonance is good for business. That all makes theoretical sense to me. The... There's an application holdup I'm sensing though. With SaaS, the problem is so clear and defined and your life after solving the problem is so discernibly different. Like with SaaS, it's like, I want to be able to do this and I can't. And the software says, now you can do that. And you can recognize that very quickly for me as a creator. And again, maybe I'm not the audience. The problems that we solve are often like softer, more pronounced, maybe even more on an emotional level and psychological level than like utility level. And I think we under index the value of utility because it's harder for us to understand the value of utility. So like software spreads because like the problem is so clear and, and so easily pointed to, to say like, look at this, you understand why this is better than the alternative, but something where it's softer and more idea centric, emotional, psychological, I think that's just harder for me to even identify as the user of that thing or the consumer of that thing to say, this is so much better. I love this because we're getting to application, right? We're getting beyond theory and repositioning and mindset and we're getting to application. I think this is where the methodology needs to come out. So, so far in my journey, and I wrote, I wrote about this on my blog uh, in a post called How to Resonate. I think there's this like flywheel that's really harmonious and builds momentum towards passionate fans, towards resonance. I think there's four pieces to it. And the first piece, if you're just starting, you can apply your force anywhere on the flywheel. That's why it's a flywheel. But I think the first piece is to say something that matters. In other words, when you say we solve a softer problem, I, I, what I hear is, oh, you're offering up a vitamin, not a painkiller. And what we need to do is lean against that problem, not shy away from it and say, well, that's reality, but to question that reality and to say, well, if you are really talking to their emotions or psychology, that should be more powerful, more pressing, more important than I need to publish some tweets on social media. I get why it doesn't feel that way to the consumer, to the audience at first, but that's why the first piece of this flywheel I'm developing is say something that matters. In other words, can you create something that sounds so pithy and powerful in the way you position and articulate your value that people throw up their hands and go, holy crap, I need that. And that applies whether you're analyzing the latest Marvel movie or offering creative inspiration or trying to teach somebody how to be good at their job which that part might sound more like a painkiller. I think it behooves us to figure out, great, that is not a reality that we exist as a part of unchangeable. That is a problem we've identified. We are not good enough at articulating a value that feels so specific and needed that people do start to come into our ecosystem the way, like you said, with SaaS, it just sort of lends itself to that because of the product. I agree with that. It's a hard chasm to close entirely. Because this, this idea of throw your hands up, oh my God, I need that, still comes at the point of I have reached you to deliver you that message. Whereas with SaaS, it's often I'm seeking it out. I'm Googling, how do I integrate this and this? Oh, there's a software tool that does that. Amazing. Yes. I'm not saying like, 
who is a creator who talks about more fulfilling work <laughs> and makes me feel better about my, about my job. Like that just, it's not user behavior to the same scale. And and here's the question on my mind, because I devalue this. I think you and most people overvalue this, which is the net new first touch. Because that's really what we're driving at here. It's like, yeah, but someone has to find you. And what I kind of believe is like, yeah, but some people already have. And if they're not like actively and passionately promoting you, then that's the problem or at least a piece of it. Because if you solve that problem in part, maybe it doesn't grow your reach enough to support your business, but it grows it a little bit. And also you are able to now say something so potent and powerful to them and deliver an experience and connect with them emotionally and keep them engaged over time. You're able to resonate with that audience. And that was your practice for when you do go outbound. Right. So, you know, for me, writing the blog posts that will emerge from the eventual resonance book, I'm not just going to say resonance in the headline. I have to start coming up with other phrases that people are already searching for because the headline is for you. But the paragraphs are for me. The paragraphs are where I convince you. You arrived thinking about this. Actually think about it this way instead. But I can't just lead with that. You know, we encountered this at HubSpot, quite frankly, massive software company. They wanted us to say, and I, I led the editorial team for a year. In our headlines, we were forbidden from saying content marketing. It was bizarre. That went away after a time, but for a year, we couldn't say content marketing because we wanted to promote and win on inbound marketing. So we couldn't write the phrase. My idea was like, well, we no, no, we should lead with that because that's what people are already saying and thinking about. And then when they opt in thinking, oh, I was here to get X, you're like, mm-hmm. if you want X, you first need Y, right? If you want reach, you first need resonance. If you want growth, if you want speed, if you want a legacy, you first need to think about this idea. But I, I can't always just lead with the big idea. And in fact, in the speech outline, the dialogue outline, I, I don't, right? Because it wouldn't work. It would, I would appeal to a percent of the room and a keynote has to go out to the whole room. So maybe this is where we leave each other. Maybe it's the reconciliation of these ideas of reach and resonance is going to play a very, very big part in this journey. Yeah, I think so. Because I think there are stages. You can't resonate with anybody if nobody's listening. So like you have to focus on reach to some degree. But if you're not delivering on the promise that people are hearing on that first touch, then it was that was a wasted effort. You're back right. to square one. I wonder how you do the thing that feels like I'm just doing this for reach, but in a way that resonates specific to you. Rather than curate the story of some Netflix or Disney executive and put that out as a Twitter thread, if I press that Twitter thread that you've curated because you're like, oh, this Twitter thread is about a big brand and a special person and threads work on Twitter. Great. Anyone could do that. What if Jay Klaus did it, though? Yeah. How do you use the full Jay Klaus repertoire so that if someone else published it, it might connect, but in a different way, or it might connect less deeply than the people who find you. And you're like, I really want to serve this person over time, not just get in front of them now. How does that work? I think there's a hidden limiting belief here that I have, which is there's so much greatness out there. Can I resonate so deeply? Do I have it within me to resonate so deeply with somebody that that has a net benefit that's larger than doing the first touch stuff? Because it's a high bar and it's getting higher all the time. Yep. I think that's my hang up. Thank you for doing this. I feel less certain about all my ideas, but more convinced that I should keep pursuing them. And I think that was the goal. 
Thank you for listening this far. Thank you for supporting this show. Just like Jay Klaus, I'm an independent podcaster. So every little bit of support, every subscription to my newsletter, every purchase of my podcasting course or my book on creativity, uh, every share that I see publicly, comment that I receive, literally every tiny action that you take really adds up. It really does benefit me and and helps me keep doing this show. And I got to tell you, like I said at the end of that interview, I am more convinced than ever before that this idea of resonance deserves to be explored and understood and and put to good use because everybody's trying to learn about how to reach people. I think resonance is learnable. I think it is a craft that we can actually get better at and use to build our businesses and leave our legacies and to make things that matter. And that's the guiding star for me, the North Star. Help people make what matters. Because if reach is how many see you, then resonance is how much they care. And isn't that the job? So with that, this is the last you'll hear from me in this calendar year. We're back in 2022 with a whole lot of great stories, a lot of cool projects. I can't wait. Have a great holiday season. Happy New Year. And keep making what matters. See ya. Thank you to our sponsor, The Juice, which is a new type of media company curating the best and brightest thinking for marketers and sales professionals today. The Juice's member organizations include high-quality brands ranging from Salesforce, HubSpot, Adobe, Disney, Drift, Animals, Vimeo, and more. You can find their best thinking from their teams on The Juice's platform, things that are proven to work and push people forward to think more critically so you can do better work. I think the idea of content marketing is a noble pursuit. It should create trust and love between an organization and their audience. But too often what we see from people that talk about marketing and sales is they want a quick injection of attention. They want to optimize for an algorithm instead of people. There's too much rehashed, homogenized thinking in our space. The juice is sick of that too. They want to surface the best and brightest ideas to help us be better in our jobs as marketing and sales pros. You can learn more, explore content playlists tailored to your job, and find better people to follow. Subscribe for free at thejuicehq.com.